Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series Authentic, a study on the book of James. As an ex-PE teacher and PE major, I wasn't a big test guy, not a big, didn't like the tests, okay? I especially hated the worst kind of test, the essay test. Because let's be honest, you either know it or you don't, right? Okay, so I hated the essay test. Second least favorite was the fill in the blank, right? Fill in the blank test, no good. Because again, you can't, you can't guess. I mean, you can put Darth Vader for so many answers, but it just doesn't need to be, right? Now, multiple choice I can handle. And except the ones that are like A plus B, A and B, not A, 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 E, and C, yes, but I didn't like those. But just give me four choices, I can B it all the way and hopefully a 25% chance. But my favorite type of test, and probably some of y'all's, was the good old-fashioned true-false. Oh, yes, good old faithful, right? Because you could know absolutely nothing and still pass feasibly because you got a 50-50 chance, true or false, right? Well, today, and we come to James 1, and we finish out the chapter, James gives us a true-false test, right? He's going to give us a true-false test. But unlike the kind that I was so fond of, this one's not so easy. Uh, there's no 50-50 chance in this one. Because what he's going to say is, and test is, your faith is real, true or false. And he's not going to ask you. He's not going to say, is your faith real? Answer yes, true or false. He's going to say, if your faith is real... If it's true, then this will be true. And if it's false, then these things won't be true, all right? Now, he's going to mention three things in this, these short little two verses that this is true, authentic, as we've been calling it, faith. And if these things are not showing up, then maybe your faith is not true. Maybe it's false. And it's not that these three things encompass all that faith is, but all faith encompasses these things at some point, okay? So it's important. This is not all that Christianity is. This is not all that your faith is, but your faith will show these three things if it's true, all right? And the beauty of this little text is this guy's not writing again from some pie-in-the-sky ideology. He saw firsthand what real, authentic faith looked like. He grew up with him. He slept in the, in the cot next to him. He slept on the floor next to him. He went to work every day at his daddy's shop with him. He ate his Cheerios next to the one who was the ideal, genuine faith, right? The Savior, his brother, who was perfect deity and perfect humanity in the same God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, his half-brother, right? And so what he's going to say to them is, this is what my brother was like, and this is what we ought to be like. This is the real deal. And for us as a church, this is why this is so vital, because I don't want us to be deceived. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want myself to be deceived that just because I assent to a couple intellectual facts, well, that, that means I'm, I'm the real deal, right? And we're going to see more of this in chapter two. This is kind of like the pretest to the real test when he gets in chapter two, but this is a, is a good pretest. So let me read our text, and then we'll kind of jump into it real quick. Verse 26, he says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He mentions three kind of true-false tests in this little, this, little, this little passage, right? And three times he mentions this word religion or religious, Right? Someone's religion is worthless if he thinks he's religious. Now, I know, I get it. 2014, the word religion in the church, bad word. It's not religion, it's relationship, right? I'm okay? I got it. I got the website, notreligion.org. I get it, okay? But let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here because technically, according to James, it is religion, okay? He's using the word in a neutral way. He's not saying... You get to heaven by being good. He's not saying that you can be good enough to earn God's... That's not what he means by religion. The word religion is just a basic word that means outward worship or outward um, just experiences that, that make you would think that you're a worshiper. 
You could say if, you're, if anyone says that he's a, a worshiper, right, or a religious person, okay? So it's not necessarily a bad, per, it, it could be devotion or, or, or piety, all right? And, and remember his audience, he's saying if anyone thinks it's himself to be religious, a worshiper, someone who, have, who is pious, these people would have said we are. I mean, there was nobody more external with their worship than the, than the Jewish people. They had almsgiving, they had feasts, they had days that they used as worship, right? They, there was prayer, there was fasting, there was regular attendance at synagogue. So they had all the externals, which are not bad things. But what he's saying is, if you think you're religious, if you think you're a worshiper, don't use those as your test. Don't, don't use the almsgiving, the fasting, and the prayer. Don't use those as the true-false, because I got a better true-false for you. And the first one is this. If he thinks he's religious, and he doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So, so don't judge giving your alms. Don't give to the building fund. Don't judge your worship, your singing, your raising your hands. Don't let that be the true-false test. True-false test number one, do you guard your mouth? And it's not just that James is anti-cussing, all right? He's not saying, don't cuss. So why does he go here? And we're, look, we're going gonna to spend 60 seconds on this, because guess what? Chapter three, we got a whole week on it. So, so if you're like, you're Mr. Mouth, you got a couple weeks, don't think you're getting off today, all right? Just so you think it. But the idea here for him is this. He knows what his big brother said. It's not just cussing. He says that the mouth speaks that which fills your heart. So you say, well, I didn't really mean that. Yeah, you did, because you said it, and you said it because it was in your heart, right? And so the idea here is not, oh, I just accidentally dropped something on my toe, and I dropped the F-bomb. That's not the idea. It's a habitual, continual lack of self-control with your mouth. So if you're constantly gossiping and slandering, and there's innuendo, and there's blatant lies, and there's misrepresentation, and there's half-truths, and there's defaming others, and there's disrespect to your parents, and there's all these things, so that is a better test of your genuineness of your faith and how much money you give and if you raise your hands, all right? So come back in four weeks and we'll talk about it. But that's test number one. Test number two, we're gonna skip because I wanna go to test number three and come back to test number two. But verse 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled, the real deal, that which is genuine, that which is clean, that which is pure before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, we'll come back to that. And then thirdly, to keep oneself unstained from the world, to keep oneself pure from the world. The idea is something with, with no spots, with no defects, okay? And so, and, and immediately what we do as a church here is because it's easy, is we go to like R-rated movies. Don't watch bad movies. Filth, that's unstained. Yeah, yeah, we get that. But the idea of keeping oneself unstained or spotless from the world, the world word, word cosmos there in the Greek, it, the idea can mean many different things, but in this context, it's the world system the world's ideals, the worldview, that you walking through this world should not, the, the worldview should not stick to you. It should not get stuck on you. It should be different for you. And so Paul says that you shouldn't be conformed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed. So the worldview, you can say, yeah, pornography, bad. But the, the stuff you're getting in Psych 101 can be just as wicked. And so the second test is that you're not conformed, that you do not conform to this world, that, that it doesn't leave its mark on you. And it could be as big as, oh, watching bad stuff or filling your mind with garbage or impure relationships. And it could be as subtle as something that's taught to you in a little Disney movie, a worldview, a way of thinking, right? I mean, something like as subtle as one of my favorite Disney films is The Little Mermaid, Right? Love the Little Mermaid, and the best song in The Little Mermaid is what? It's Kiss the Girl, right? Who doesn't love a crab singing reggae? Everyone loves a crab singing reggae, right? And you're at the end of the song, you're like, just kiss the girl, and you want him to kiss. But the thing is this, I'm a father of a daughter. I don't want him kissing the girl. I don't want him in the car with the girl or the boat. I want the girl asleep by 9.30. But it's so easy to say, yeah, just kiss the girl. And it could be as subtle as something like that. He says, keep yourself unstained from that. And we're going to look at that next week, because that's really the first part of chapter two, is what does it mean to be unstained? He's going to deal with one of the biggest misrepresentations of our culture. So we'll look at that next week. 
But then right in the middle there, he says, test number three, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, and I think he uses the Father there. He only uses the word Father three times in the whole book of James. But he says the Father is this, to do what? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, who are the widows and orphans in their day? They are the most vulnerable. They are the weakest. They are the the ones that are taken advantage the most. If you were a widow in those days, it was immediately, you're automatically just impoverished. Because you couldn't ship the kids off to daycare and go get a job. You just couldn't do it. it just, that's not the culture they lived in. You were immediately just basically at the mercy of those around you. The orphan, all right, when they got to a certain age, they could be easily abused. They could be taken in as a slave. They could be sent as a gladiator. They could be used as as a prostitute, all sorts of abuses for these orphans. But these are the most vulnerable people in their day and age, easily taken advantage, very vulnerable, and offer you nothing in return. And helping these people, they don't, they don't, they can't, they're not going to give you anything in return. Okay? It's, it's just giving for the sake of it. And what James says is this. You want a better test than you're, than you're going to church? You want a better test than your quiet time? You want a better test than how much scripture you memorize? You want a better test than how much money you give? Talk about your mouth, talk about not being conformed, and then thirdly, true, false, you care about the vulnerable. You do something about those who are most vulnerable. That's authentic, genuine faith lived out. It's a better test than going to church. It's a better test than singing the song. And it's important because this is the nature of God. And we're not going to unpack it, but several times throughout the Old Testament, God highlights the fact that he cares about the the orphan and the widow. And so as early as in Deuteronomy, he says this, that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This is in the law. This is Israel right up front. He says that God cares about this. In the Psalms, they they worship saying that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widow is God in his holy habitation. I don't have time to read the entire thing, but Isaiah 1, God rebukes the nation of Israel. He actually calls them Sodom. He calls Israel Sodom. He says, you got all these sacrifices, and you got all this church, and you got all these new moon and Sabbath. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. You will become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And then he, he commands them to wash themselves, make themselves clean, remove evil from their deeds, the evil deeds from his eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. They're doing all the sacrifices, but they got all these people they're oppressing. They're ignoring the vulnerable. That is the heart of God. And so back in James, James says, look, this is what my brother did. This, this, this is what my brother lived. This is what he cared about. He cared about the vulnerable. And, he, and he, again, he says that you were to visit orphans. And it's a word that the idea is it's not from a distance, there is a time and place to write a check and send it, there, and it's a great need. But there is a time to roll up the sleeves and to get down in the mud and visit. And this is not like Monopoly. Just visiting, I'm just going to roll the dice and be gone. This is Moses who left the palace to visit his people, Israel. All right, and so he leaves that. It's, it's of God who sees the need of these people, and he leaves heaven, and he becomes a man. He, he is incarnation. He becomes, takes on flesh, becomes one of us, lives life on life with his people. That's the idea behind visit, right? And the idea is you, you have to care about what God cares about if your faith is genuine. You, you, just, you just have to, right? And so what he's saying, again, is this is what my brother did, y'all. This is what God calls them. And they can say, but we're poor. We're broke. They were a lot of them. Lost jobs, lost houses. But it doesn't matter. True and undefiled is this, to visit orphans, to be on the ground, the most vulnerable. And, And again, it's not just widows and orphans. The most vulnerable in our culture is who? You got inner city, you got homeless, you got unemployed, you got penniless, and you got those who cannot defend themselves. All these things are wrapped into that. And again, it's because that's, this is what God has done for us. He made you who were his enemy. He adopted you, and he made you his family. He chose you and brought you in and made you an heir, and that's the idea of our father. And so he says, now you go and be my hands. 
And here's what that means for us. As a church, we've done some good things in that. We've done some horrible things. And some of you here, maybe you're one of the vulnerable and we have failed you. And understand that that was never our intention. But I can promise you this, that God was not ignorant of your plight, even if we were, or even if we missed it. Because he is never ignorant of our plight. But what we want to do as a church is we want to ask the question, if CBC did not exist, would Savannah be any different? That, that's, that's the question we want to ask, right? We, we want to have an impact on the community around us, the South Gardens, and then beyond. And, and what we're not looking to do here is reinvent the wheel. I'm not, you know, today announcing a new initiative, the CBC, the, 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 whatever. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here, all right? Maybe God's calling you to start a 503C and get a board and get some funds, or, or maybe not. You don't have to do that. You just have to, as, as one of our guys is going to tell you, you just have to show up. Because we have, and this is two things that I've done today uh, to encourage us, because all we want to do is just create some direction and some motion, and God's stirring your hearts. This is not like, let's guilt people into doing stuff. That's not what we're trying to do. Just trying to say, look, authentic faith cares about those around us, and if you don't, you better check your heart. That's all. But I've invited several of the ministries that we support and that we have people at this church that are involved in. Widows and orphans ministry, specifically orphans and widows and, and nursing homes and adoption and, and crisis pregnancy. And they're going to put their stuff out. They're already started out there. And just for you can get some information and you can start praying and maybe you can be moved in a direction to help in this organization. Maybe you can go counsel. Maybe you can show up once on a Saturday afternoon. Maybe you can do whatever. All right? So we can be doers of the word. But also I've invited some of them to speak of how God has just moved on their hearts and, and how it, he moved in their heart, and then this is the direction he took them. And, and again, it's not so, you, so I'm trying to send you to Kenya. I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm not trying to guilt anybody. It's not my job. But so that you can see just normal people just like you, God moved on their heart, and they acted. And they're not mega Christians. They're not super Christians. They don't have all these super whatever. They're just like you and me. It's just like the writer to Hebrews said, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, I just wanted to present to you two great cloud of witnesses this morning so you could see what God did in their lives and so that they could encourage you. And so I've invited them to speak and, and rather, rather than me go on and say, well, here's what this means, let them kind of talk what it, what it meant in their life. And so I'm gonna get out of the way and I'm gonna let them speak and then we're gonna worship again if the slides will work for us. Um, so, so, but let me try to kind of introduce the two different groups here. The first group will be Greg and Stacy Konofchinsky, all right, who have been going here for a while. They have, have seven, soon to be eight, Right? I'm, right, I'm right on that number. Where, where, there you go. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Uh, soon to be eight. They are in the process of adopting uh, their eighth child from the Ukraine. Um, not eighth from the Ukraine, third from the Ukraine, eighth child. Um, and they're going to share what kind of God, how that story worked for them and how God moved on their heart to do that. And I'm going to invite Joey Espinosa up. And I've known Joey since before I was married. And many of you who uh, have gone on the Allendale trips or, or have high school kids, you're familiar with Joey. And God kind of moved him up and out and into Allendale as kind of a missionary to Allendale. And he's going to share kind of his story uh, after them and just hear what God did in their lives. Uh, and then we'll and keep worshiping. And, and my prayer for our church is, again, is that, that we would be engaged. This is our E. This is our E on our specs, that you be engaged with the culture for the sake of the gospel. All right? And that you would see those around you have needs and that if God puts you there, that you would be caring about the vulnerable. So uh, Greg and Stacy, why don't you guys kind of come on up? And if you want to bring the kids, they can come up too. We've got plenty of stage here. Let's go. Good morning, CBC. Um, I am Greg, and this is Stacy. And when Bill first told us that we got to share our adoption story, we were very excited. And we took a weekend, one weekend, and start, sat down and started writing all the stuff out we wanted to tell you. And we were about a third of the way through our story, and we were way over our time. So realize this is a very abbreviated version of our story. Um, if any of you would ever like to talk to about adoption with us or like to hear more of our story, we would love to tell you. Um, just want you to know that we are in a very short time frame here. Um, currently, we do have seven children, um, as Bill said. We all do have four biological children. We um, started with those. There we are. There they are. Woo! Four biological children, and we have adopted three so far. Our first adoption was Clay. He's the little brown-haired kid, the one that does not fit in with everybody else. <laughs> he, is our, um, he was our domestic adoption. He was actually born right here in Savannah. 
Um, we got him when he was three months old. And the other two babies up there, oh, there's Clay. There's Clay. The other two babies up there are um, Otto and Zoe will be coming after a while, I'm sure. We got them from Ukraine. Um, it was a little over a year ago. And like Bill said, we are currently in the process of our, there's Zoe, hello. Um, currently in the process of adopting our fourth child. Um, we'll get to that later. Um, just to let you know, we never meant to have that big of a family. When me and Stacy got married, um, we definitely wanted children. The question was, how many children do we want? Two to four. For me. Her, four to six. What a compromise. Let's go with four. And so we ended up with four children. Um, everything was great up to that point. We had a considered adoption on and off a little bit, nothing serious prior to that, but about when our youngest child was probably around two years old, it hit us that through a series of events, we really probably need to think about adopting a kid. And so we did. We um, pursued a domestic adoption. And while we were open to children with special needs, we really, we knew what was right for us. We thought a healthy little newborn baby would be just perfect to add to our family. If, okay, we'll stretch the limits, maybe a healthy young toddler. But that's, that's as far as we feel. We already had four children. We don't have time for a special needs child. And so we pursued this, um, went down this road pursuing this child. Um, this, this little trip of ours took about a year, and it was a very emotional roller coaster for us and our family. Throughout this year process, every two or three weeks, we'd hear of a child saying, ooh, this child's up for adoption. We want her, we want her. No. Something would fall through. And there was the weirdest situations came across of why we didn't get these children. But it went on and on and on for about a year. And after about a year's time, we're starting to really wonder, is this really what God has planned for us? I mean, we've been turned down, I don't know, 15 times now. It didn't help either that um, our, some of our extended family weren't exactly enthusiastic about our adopting. You could even say they were thought we were making a mistake. We would have loving, well-meaning people telling us or asking us, do you really want to do this to you and your family? Well, it wasn't long after this, thank goodness, that we did find out about a little three-month-old boy born right here in Georgia, which made things easier. Um, he did have fetal alcohol syndrome, and he did have a feeding tube, but we thought, heck, we've been turned down 15 times. Let's throw our name in the hat one more time. What do you think? And at the same time, when we did that, it's like something seemed different this time. And sure enough, three days later, we got a phone call. You've got a kid. Three days after that, we actually did have a kid. Um, <coughs> um, and that was Clay. Clay had just joined our family. He was supposed to be three months old. He looked much more like a newborn. He was about seven and a half pounds when we got him. And as most of you know who have children, a newborn is a lot of work. This baby was like triplets, I think. <laughs> Not only was he like a newborn, he stayed like a newborn. He had special needs. We visited more specialists, pediatric specialists in Savannah that I ever knew existed. We went to more therapy treatments that I knew we ever could, and we survived on less sleep than I thought was physically possible. This baby needed to be fed every two hours, 24 hours a day, for more than six months. So sleep at our house was a luxury. If you slept more than four hours, it was, get up, it's your turn. <laughs> I want to go to sleep. Um, but we made it through. Um, we often tell people that if we would have known how much work Clay would have been before we ever got him, we're not sure if we would have taken him. But at the same time, now that we are past that and we can look back, we are so, so glad we adopted that baby. That baby has been the biggest blessing to our family. And so there we are, five children, four biological, one adopted. We've done our part. We're good. Our family is complete. But about eight months after we got Clay, Without actually verbally saying it, God made it very, very clear to Stacy that she had a daughter in Ukraine. And you can imagine my surprise when I come home one day and she says, um, Greg, um, I think we have a daughter in Ukraine with Down syndrome and we need to go get her. So my first thought is, hmm, she might be a little crazy. 
possibly delusional from the lack of sleep we've been getting. Hmm. But keep a happy marriage. I thought, I'll pray about it. Give me some time. I'll get back to you soon. And? I could think of all kinds of excuses why we should not go get this baby. Cost. International adoption is expensive. I got my hands full. I, get, I can barely afford the five I got, feel like, sometimes. Um, time. We got this high-needs baby already. How are we going to go get another special-needs child and be able to take care of that one? By this time, at this point in our life, we had never left Clay alone with anybody just for the fact that so special-needs. He had so many medications that had to be delivered on time, feeding constantly around the clock. We don't let anybody else take care of him. He, he was our child. We took care of him. We're going to leave this child with somebody else for up to a month? Who's going who's gonna to sign up for that? Nobody. I, Down syndrome? I don't even know what that is. How am I supposed to uh, handle a child with Down syndrome? I don't even know what Down syndrome is. Through and through, all these excuses, but we knew. Um, God wanted us to go get this little girl, and so we stepped forward. And it really hit me when I really thought about it. What am I going to say when I'm hopefully someday in the presence of God? And he says, I told your wife you have a child in Ukraine. Why didn't you go get her? And that, that was it. I couldn't do it. We, we, were, we were full in. And only seven months later, seven months, we had all the paperwork done, and we were fully funded. And so we were on our way to the airport with one-way tickets to Ukraine, not to get our daughter, but to get our daughter and our son. We were overfunded, and we kind of made a deal with God, I think, just said, if you overfund us, we'll get to. And we went way overfunding, so we got to. Um, our time in Ukraine was, um, there's not enough time up here to even talk about the time in Ukraine alone. It was hectic. It was tiresome. It was crazy. It was very eventful, um, stressful, all kinds of stuff. There was more drama in that little time period than the ent my entire life combined. Probably Stasis too. Just drama galore. And we really mark it up to spiritual warfare. Um, Satan really didn't want us adopting these babies, but we pursued. And more than that, though, being in a foreign country like that where very few people speak the language, we're very vulnerable, we're off by ourselves, that time was so precious to us because it made us be closer to God than we ever had. We had to rely on him for everything. We had to trust him more than we ever, ever trusted him, and we feel like he brought us close. And long story short, about two months later, we were home. We were home with our seven children, and we are so happy that we made it through the journey, and we are here. But that is just a really short version of our adoption story. There's so many little tidbits I wanted to put in there that were just, oh, this is so cool, and that's so cool, but we just didn't have time for it. But um, as I mentioned earlier, our journey is not over. We are currently in the process of our fourth adoption. Um, it's a little girl in Eastern Europe who, like Clay, has fetal, down syn fetal alcohol syndrome, and she also has spina bifida. Um, but what God has shown us through these adoptions is so awesome. Some people think we're wasting our lives. They look at us and go, you have how many adopted children, and you're getting another one? You're wasting your life. What are you doing caring for these children? But I see it the other way around. I look at them, and I go, I'm not the one wasting my life. You are. I'm trying to pursue what God has for me. I'm not after the American dream. And so we have learned so much through, this, through these uh, through these adoptions, and I want to turn the microphone over to Stacy now, who has not had a voice the last two days, but she is slowly coming back. That's why I've been doing most of the talking so far. If Otherwise, I would have never gotten the microphone. <laughs> but uh, here's Stacy to talk about what we have learned about our family and our what we've um, just learned about God by through these adoptions. So that's our story so far. Sorry about my voice. We've Satan does not want us here today to share with you, and I guess he, maybe I needed to shut up a little bit for Greg to talk, but um, people, I would, the general idea in America of, of adoption is if you can't have children, that's a great plan B. That's a way to grow your family, and I just want to challenge you to think about adoption in a new way. Adoption is not a plan B. Adoption is something that God made. Ad adoption is something that God blesses. And adoption is a way to live out your faith for the world to see. 
Um, we've chosen adoption in our family because God first loved us. And so we were just filled with this love that God chose us, God loved us. And so naturally, we wanted to share that love. And our earthly adoptions of our children are such a picture of the gospel and the redemption that we've been freely given by God. And just like God has chosen us to be his sons and daughters, we have chosen these children as our sons and daughters. There's nothing that we have done to choose adoption by God, but God chose us. And there's nothing that our adopted children did to choose adoption, but we chose them. Most adopted children come with baggage. They come with issues. Our children came from orphanages where they had never been touched. They had never seen a toy. They didn't even know they had feet. They didn't know hard surface, soft surface. They didn't know where their bodies were in space. They couldn't, they, they had literally laid in a crib their entire lives with nothing. And so we knew that was going to come with issues. But God doesn't demand that we be perfect and put together to be part of his family. He takes us in our need. We are stinky. We are full of sin. And he chooses us anyways. He takes us in. He loves us. He grants us his inheritance. And Clay and Otto and Zoe didn't come to us with anything but needs. But what a joy it's been for us to meet those needs. What a blessing to share God's love with them. Adoption has come at a cost for our family. But God's love came to us at a greater cost. We've had to sacrifice time and money and plans and friendships and the support of family. But our sacrifice is so small compared to the sacrifice that God made to invite us into his family. Like Greg said, adoption is a battle. Spiritual warfare is live and rampant in adoption. And adopt, the adoption circle, you know, everybody has their adoption t-shirts. One of the, my favorites says, worth the fight. And these orphans, they are human beings made in the image of God, and they are worth the fight. They are worth standing up for. And if as Christians we're not willing to stand in the gap for the vulnerable, who would be? If as Christians we don't want to get involved, we don't want to sacrifice for that, we can't expect the world to. God's called us to do it. It's a call to his people to stand up for these kids. And if you ask any family who's adopted, they've probably had job loss, huge medical bills, trials. That's what happens. When you decide to step in the gap for the vulnerable, Satan will be there to meet you, to try to stop you. And we've seen it over and over, and you can probably ask any family that's adopted, they can testify to that. Because these orphans make perfect targets for Satan. He comes to kill and destroy, and that's an easy target. Somebody that's never known love, that's never been touched, that's never had family. But God does not desire for any child to be abandoned, abused, neglected, or to never feel loved. God commands us, body of Christ, step up and be his hands and feet to these children, to the widows, to the vulnerable. And if, as Christians, we want to claim pro-life, it doesn't stop at anti-abortion. We need to do something for children that have been given the gift of life and for people that are alive but don't have love. Um, like Greg said, adoption has changed our lives. It's brought us closer to God than we ever imagined that we would be. Uh, we've prayed for our children to see God in a real way during their childhoods. We've prayed that our hearts and our family's hearts would be broken for the things that break the heart of God. We've begged for God to show us his face. And he has. He's showed up and answered all of these prayers through our adoption experiences. Adoption is about so much more than a child finding a family. Only God can see the tapestry he's woven, and I wish we had time to share with you some of those things, just the glimpses that God's given us. <clears throat> but from what we've seen, adoption is something that God has used to accomplish big things in many lives. Clay and Otto and Zoe have impacted people in their short two-year-old lives, they've impacted more people than I'm sure I ever have. Adoption has been an avenue for us to know and see God in ways we'll never forget. And lots of well-meaning people have shared their concerns about what our family's doing, what we're, how we're scarring our biological children, how we're taking away from our biological children, but we don't see that. Our goal for our children, all of our children, is for them to know God, love God, and serve God. And adoption has done nothing but help us to instill these in our children. And our children do sacrifice. That's what God calls all of us to do. 
they don't get to do everything, be involved in everything, go everywhere that maybe some of their friends get to. And their childhoods are certainly different than the American dream. But God has blessed them with better gifts. They've got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in ways that you don't see in a lot of kids in our society. And I don't want my children to look like the world. I want my children to reflect Jesus. So through all this, people are constantly coming up to us and saying, you are amazing. We're not. We're not. We're normal. We're just people. We serve an amazing God, and he's blessed us in a huge way. But we're just regular, sinful people with issues. We're not perfect parents. We don't have it all together. We struggle. We question. We wonder, what are we doing? Sometimes it feels like it would have been easier to go with our plan A, have our big house, our nice cars, our great careers, our couple perfect children who can do ballet and basketball and volleyball and play the violin and harmonica. But God's plan has been so much better for us. And we just made a decision as a family to lay our lives down and let God just pick them up and do what he would with them. And I'm so thankful we did. And God has shown up for us to provide in times of need and give us miracles because we've allowed him, we've invited him in. We've put ourselves in situations that demand total reliance on God. And if you never put yourself in that situation, you'll never get that miracle. You'll never get that blessing. Um, <clears throat> I, my prayer for the church is just that we would stand up as Christians, as the hands and feet, as the body of Christ for orphans and widows and defend their causes, to love them because God first loved us. And the world will notice. Instead of telling about the love of Christ, let's live the love of Christ. If the 2 billion Christians in the world stood up for the 150 million orphans, guess what? The world will know he's real. The world will see Jesus. And they won't wonder what us Christians are talking about. They'll see it. And Greg and I have wonder, wondered, are we the real deal? Are we for, do we, is our faith real? Are we really doing what God's called us to do? And when we were trying to make sense of all this craziness that God was laying on our hearts, um, there's a song by the Sidewalk Prophets called I Want to Live Like That. And it talks about being recklessly abandoned, being proof of who God says he is, being love when no one else will show up, being Jesus to the least of us. And that song has brought me to tears time and time again in convicting me that that is the call that I need to heed. And it's not easy, but it's blessed. And it's better than any other call I could follow. So I'm just so thankful that God has chosen adoption for our family. Adoption isn't for everyone. Every family is not suited to be a, an adoptive family. But caring for the least of these is for everyone. If you're a believer, it's for you. It is your calling. Um, so we just encourage you to find a way to get involved in that. Um, our, we have prayer cards down here if you want to follow our journey, if you're curious about adoption, if you're interested in it. I have a blog that I write on occasionally. Um, my email is in the um, bulletin for the shoe drive. So we want to be a resource to you. If you have questions or interests or whatever, just we're here. We love adoption. We love the Lord. And we feel like it's just been a way that God has used us in a, in a really great way. Um, as Stacy said, adoption isn't for everyone. Um, I know many people who say, wow, that's great. And I'm thinking, you should not adopt. Don't even think about it. Um, but helping orphans is for everybody. Um, if you're a believer, we truly believe that everybody should be doing something to help the orphans. There are so many ways you could help. Um, you don't have to adopt. You can foster care. If you can't foster care, you could be respite care. If you can't do respite care, maybe you could babysit for a family who has adopted. You could maybe provide a meal for them. You can, some of you are good very well, write a check to help somebody fund their adoption. There are so many things we can do. You could even just sponsor a child. Um, there's children all over the world living in poverty. Just adopt a child. Send them a check. Or, or, so yeah, send them a check once a month. It's a short, small amount of money, amount of money that we would never miss. Um, you have everything, I can't afford that. Yes, you can. Everybody can. Um, we just want you to know um, we really enjoyed being, come up, being able to come up here and tell you about our adoption story. Um, adoption was not in our plan originally, but God turned it around, and here's where we are. Um, adoption definitely requires sacrifices, but God does call us to be his hands and feet, and that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to live our lives to um, be in God's plan. 
And thank you very much. All right, thank you all very much. Um, Real quick, I want to get into it, um, kind of share our story. And I'm not going to say give a bunch of background, but I'll give some quick. Uh, I'm married, uh, my wife, and we have three kids, and they'll be here later this morning. And there's a whole bunch of story of how we wound up in Allendale, which is a place about an hour and a half northwest of here. Some of y'all are familiar with it. Um, but I'm not going to get into the whole story there. You can stalk me on social media. Or I, I do write a blog as well, um, and I update it probably about three times a week where we're sharing what we're learning and how God brought us with that journey there. So it's missionallendale.wordpress.com. I have some cards if you want to check that out. Um, just don't check it out right now. All right, not, not right now on your smartphones. All right, we moved to Allendale about three years ago. Um, and, and I could go into all the stats, and I'm a numbers guy. I, I was a chemist by trade um, uh, years ago, and I, I, like, I like stats. So I'm not going to get into all that because I think we can get focused on that too much. Um, but just so you know, Allendale in 2010 was listed as the 10th most impoverished county in the United States. All right, so an hour and a half from here, 10th most impoverished county. Um, just for the sake of context, it's um, about 75% African American. So, so my family, right, we're, we're, we're in the minority there. Um, most white families and a lot of black families don't send their kids to the local schools because of the number of issues. 70% single parents, 12% of the population is incarcerated, right? So right there in the county, right there. Hundreds, uh, over 100, 150 churches, um, but there's a famine of God's word there. So that, that's the context of what Allendale is like. And for all the things that we've learned about poverty, um, coming from our background, what we've learning is that poverty is not just about a lack of money. Poverty is about broken relationships, broken relationships with God, with each other, with ourselves. So, so we're all dealing with the issue of poverty, that we have some brokenness in us. And I could talk a lot about poverty and about all the things about it, but I want to focus on one word, and that's the idea of hope, right? That poverty invol- uh, includes a lack of opportunity, and even a lot of times a lack of an awareness that there's an opportunity, that there's a world out there of hope. See, when I look back in the book of Exodus and I see the Hebrews, um, you know, a, a million and a half men plus women and children, probably three or four million Hebrews stuck in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, right? My first thought is, I mean, at some point, did no one think we could rise up, right? I mean, yeah, we don't have weapons, but, but we could fight back and we're probably someone's going to die, but we can get out of there, get out of this. And I think that a big thing, the reason they didn't is they just didn't think they could do it right? They, they just didn't believe they could. And I think that's a key component of generational poverty that we see and we're, and we're learning is that generation after generation loses hope, right? And sometimes that loss of hope is due to our own sin, and sometimes it's due to sins of others, right? Being lied to and abused and taken advantage. But eventually you think this is life and there's no changing, so we'll just live with it. So, so here's what's needed. Here's what we're learning what's needed is that the body of Christ is what's needed, Right, the body of Christ is needed to show that there's, that there's hope um, for a changed life, that there's hope for a better life through, through education, through character building, but most of all, there's hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, who came to die for us and who's redeeming this broken world. So, so what I want to share and what I'm, what, I, what I'm trying to explain to you is that this is what we're learning, right? Us, my wife and I, coming from, you know, white, middle-class, conservative background, there's a whole bunch I'd love to share with you about what we're learning and what we thought we knew about what people needed versus what we see now. So just, just so you understand, this is all new to us in the last few years. All right. And one of the key things I want to say is um, what we're learning is people need your presence, not your presence. All right. People need your presence, your, your being there with them, not your presence, your gifts. All right, so people need your presence, C-E, not your presence with, ends with a T-S right there. And, and because there are, and, and as, as, um, as, as Greg and Tracy explained, there, there, there is a lot that's needed there, right? But for a lasting hope, it, yes, the people do need your check and your money and different things, and that's absolutely true, right? But a lasting hope does not come simply by writing a check and forgetting about it. It doesn't come from donating old clothes or telling people you need to work harder, you need to get a job, you need to make better choices. Or, or, or a lasting hope does not come by reading a Bible story and doing an altar call, right? What's needed is the body of Christ to show love, to come alongside. All right, I'm going to make some of you mad when I say this. All right, I recognize that. Um, um, but a lot of you who say, I have the spiritual gift of hospitality, but, but you don't, 
All right, because here's the thing. There is no spiritual gift of hospitality. There's nowhere in the Bible, I want someone to show it to me, where it lists, here are the spiritual gifts, and hospitality is one of them, right? And some of you love to have people over for dinner and love to have parties, and that's great. I'm not dissing that. That is a great thing. The Greek word for hospitality is xenophilia, and it means you love strangers like your brother. It has nothing to do with dinner parties, and those are good things, right? But it means that there's someone I don't know. There's someone who's an outsider, and I'm going to love them like I love my brother. So when I moved to Allen, there was a really short notice, um, and, um, and so for three months, I commuted between Greenville and Allendale. I would drive down on Sunday night or Monday morning, work at the after-school program, that uh, Boys and Girls Club, and live with a guy there, and the guy named was Mike Smalls. He's a guy, a connection that I met one time, um, but through, through our old church, right? Uh, African-American man, he's a former military detention center officer, a real big guy, so it's ironic his name was Mike Smalls. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you just didn't mess it. I called him my bodyguard, so it was good, right? So I showed up every Monday morning, and there was a bed, right? I had my own bedroom, and there was clean sheets, and he was a military guy, so everything was, you know, hospital corners, everything. Towels, clean towels, everything. At the end of the first month, I got my first paycheck. I, I, I left an envelope with some money, with some cash. I said, hey, thanks. I appreciate it. And I'll give you some more next month. And I came back next week, and he said, hey, thanks for that. Don't do that again, okay, because he's a bodyguard, so I listened to him. I was like, all right, I won't do that again. But, but here's the thing. He loved me like a brother, right, because you don't charge your brother rent, right? He said, no, you're here. You're doing God's work. You do this. Because, and, and like Stacy said, I love this. She said, right, John 13 says, by this, the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how the world is going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And, 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 and Billy, y'all call him Bill. I knew him when he was Billy, so something happened to the Y over the last few years, right? So, so Bill, what he said, he used the word incarnation, right? And, and the word incarnation is a Latin word that means in meat, Right? So Jesus took on meat. He put meat on himself and came to be with us. And, and, and that sounds so messy, right? You think about meat all over me, right? And it is messy because if we're going to show love, if we're going to be community, if we're going to enter into someone's brokenness and pain, it's going to be messy, right? And it's going to be uncomfortable. So I, I coached football last couple of years at the high school, and, you know, I'm the only white guy on the sideline over there, you know, no guys, no teenagers, right? I, I'm it. And so some, some of my ball players this summer went to Boy State, um, uh, you know, Palmetto Boy State, and I saw them tweet on Sunday afternoon, hey, there's like seven black guys here in all of Boy State. And so I tweeted back, I said, now you know how I feel in Allendale. So thank you very much for realizing that, right? And so it's uncomfortable. And hospitality, love of strangers, doesn't mean it's at your turf. It's at your house. Sometimes it means you go someplace else and you're the stranger, right? Because First Peter um, says that we are all aliens and strangers of this world. So it doesn't matter where you are. It's at your house, someone else's house, someone else's turf. We're all aliens and strangers. For, so it's because for, for, for missions and being missional, it's not about the program, the event, right? The goal is the relationship, the community, Right? And see, most churches use, um, use relationships to get a project done, and then they're happy about things. But I think it needs to be the backwards. That's what we're learning, is that the project, the event, is the excuse to build relationships, and those relationships, that community, is what, how life change happens. And, and, and you engage someone in the pain where they are, and then you don't solve their problem because you can't. Right? What you do is you move towards them, towards their pain, towards their mess, and then you just hold out Jesus to them. Okay, because it's not about your gifts, your presence, it's about your time, your presence. And I think we have a picture um, from uh, a camp, and this is something we've done the last few years. Um, we did a camp, right? And so we, we do a spring break camp in Allendale, and the big giant white guy is Ryan Volkert, a friend of mine from Greenville, and they, they're coming for the third year this year. And so you have John, who's a teenager from Greenville, who, who's come down, and Courtney, who's one of my football players, and um, the two white kids over there, that's Cooper and Eric, that's one of his kids and a friend, and the rest of these kids, including my son in the middle, are from Allendale. Um, and so what we do, we do this camp, right? And it's great. We have fun, and, and yeah, we do a health curriculum, and we play Legos, and we do soccer, and we do all this fun stuff. But the coolest thing is the relationships, that when Ardwan, who's in the bottom right, when he also goes up to elementary camp with some of these same kids, right? It's not just a once a year thing, it's a relationship. He sees Ryan and he runs up and gives him a hug because he's come down a couple times. And Courtney, 
finds out John is coming back again to do soccer camp, and he's excited that John, because they didn't just come for camp, those guys played basketball every afternoon, they played pool, they ate Chinese food together, they hung out all week. And it's those relationships that are going to lead to life change and, 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 and a hope right there. Okay, so, um, so here's the thing. When you talk about relationships, when you talk about um, um, community, when you talk about serving others and engaging in someone's brokenness, it's, it's really simple because it's just your time. All right? that, 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 that's what it takes. It's, it's your time, it's your resources, but, it, but it's hard. It's simple and it's hard and it's messy, but that's okay because that's exactly what Jesus did. Right? What Jesus did by putting on meat, it was simple but it was messy and costly. It cost him his, 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 it cost him humility, right? Because he put on this flesh and came to earth and it cost him his life. Second Corinthians 8, 9, and I'll close with this, says, um, Jesus, uh, uh, Paul writes, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And we are all rich. We're all rich materialistically, but we're all rich if you're in the body of Christ. We're all rich spiritually in Jesus Christ. And so I'd love to talk more about you, kind of what we do, but also be encouragement for you that, yes, you take your time, you take your resources, and you go out and you show love of strangers like they're your brothers. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for, um, for your love for us, that you reached out to our brokenness, and you took on that meat, you took on that flesh to be a part of our life. And thank you for that. Thank you that um, we have a full hope in you for everything. And Jesus, I pray that we would be able to model that. Thank you for this church and all that they're doing in the city and around, that they are reaching out and loving others, God. And I pray you continue to bless them, but help each person in here, each, each of us, to continue to do that, and that we don't hold to what we have, but we hold to what you are, are, are giving us, and that's a full hope in your son. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sins and that you are redeeming this broken world. And to your name we pray, amen.